Part three, chapter fourteen of the Secret City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Secret City by Hugh Walpole. Part three, chapter fourteen. As soon as I had finished reading the letter, I went to the telephone and rang up the Markovitch's flat. Bowen spoke to me. I asked him whether Nicholas was there. He said, yes, fast asleep in the armchair. Was Semyonov there? No, he was dining out that night. I asked him to remind Vera that I was expecting to take her to the meeting next day, and rang off. There was nothing more to be done just then. Two minutes later there was a knock on my door, and Vera came in. Why, I cried, I've just been ringing up to tell you that of course I was coming on Monday. That is partly what I wanted to know, she said, smiling, and also I thought that you'd fancied we'd all deserted you. No, I answered, I don't expect you round here every time I'm ill. That would be absurd. You'll be glad to know at any rate that I've decided to give up these ridiculous rooms. I deserve all the illness I get so long as I'm here. Yes, that's good, she answered. How you could have stayed so long! She dropped into a chair, closed her eyes, and lay back. Oh, Ivan Andreevich, but I'm tired. She looked, lying there, white-faced, her eyelids like gray shadows, utterly exhausted. I waited in silence. After a time she opened her eyes and said suddenly, We all come and talk to you, don't we? I, Nina, Nicholas, Sherry, she meant Lawrence, even Uncle Alexey. I wonder why we do, because we never take your advice, you know. Perhaps it's because you seem right outside everything. I colored a little at that. Did I hurt you? I'm sorry. No, I don't know that I am. I don't mind now whether I hurt anyone. You know that he's going back to England. I nodded my head. He told you himself? Yes, I said. She lay back in her chair and was silent for a long time. You think I'm a noble woman, don't you? Oh, yes, you do. I can see you just thirsting for my nobility. It's what Uncle Alexey always says about you, that you've learnt from Dostoevsky how to be noble, and it's become a habit with you. If you're going to believe, I began angrily. Oh, I hate him. I listen to nothing that he says. All the same, Dirtles, this passion for nobility on your part is very irritating. I can see you now making up the most magnificent picture of my nobility. I'm sure if you were ever to write a book about us all, you'd write of me something like this. Vera Mikhailovna had won her victory. She had achieved her destiny. Having surrendered her lover, she was as fine as a Greek statue. Something like that. Oh, I can see you at it. You don't understand, I began. Oh, but I do, she answered. I've watched your attitude to me from the first. You wanted to make poor Nina noble, and then Nicholas, and then, because they wouldn't either of them do, you had to fall back upon me. Memories of that marvellous woman at the front, Marie someone or other, have stirred up your romantic soul until it's all whipped cream and jam, mulberry jam, you know, so as to have the proper dark colour. Why all this attack on me, I asked, what have I done? "'You've done nothing,' she cried. "'We all love you, Dirtles, because you're such a baby, "'because you dream such dreams, see nothing as it is. "'And perhaps, after all, you're right. "'Your vision is as good as another. "'But this time you've made me restless. 
You're never to see me as a noblewoman again, Ivan Andreevich. See me as I am, just for five minutes. I haven't a drop of noble feeling in my soul. You've just given him up, I said. You've sent him back to England, although you adore him, because your duty's with your husband. You're breaking your heart. Yes, I am breaking my heart, she said quietly. I'm a dead woman without him. And it's my weakness, my cowardice, that is sending him away. What would a French woman or an English woman have done? Given up the world for their lover, given up a thousand Nicholases, sacrificed a hundred Ninas. That's real life. That's real, I tell you. What feeling is there in my soul that counts for a moment beside my feeling for Sherry? I say and I feel, and I know that I would die for him, die with him, happily, gladly. Those are no empty words. I who have never been in love before, I am devoured by it now, until there is nothing left of me, nothing. And yet I remain. It is our weakness, our national idleness. I haven't the strength to leave Nicholas. I am soft, sentimental about his unhappiness. Pah! How I despise myself! I am capable of living on here for years with husband and lover, going from one to another, weeping for both of them. Already I am pleading with Sherry that he should remain here. We will see what will happen. We will see what will happen. Ah, my contempt for myself! Without bones, without energy, without character. But this is life, Ivan Andreevich. I stay here. I send him away, because I cannot bear to see Nicholas suffer. And I do not care for Nicholas. Do you understand that? I never loved him. And now I have a contempt for him, in spite of myself. Uncle Alexei has done that. Oh, yes, he has made a fool of Nicholas for months. And although I have hated him for doing that, I have seen also what a fool Nicholas is. But he is a hero, too. Make him as noble as you like, Ivan Andreevich. You cannot color it too high. He is the real thing, and I am the sham. But, oh, I do not want to live with him any more. I am tired of him, his experiments, his lamentations, his weakness, his lack of humor. Tired of him, sick of him. And yet I cannot leave him, because I am soft, soft without bones, like my country, Ivan Andreevich. My lover is strong. Nothing can change his will. He will go, will leave me, until he knows that I am free. Then he will never leave me again. Perhaps I will get tired of his strength one day. It may be, just as now I am tired of Nicholas's weakness. Everything has its end. But no, he has humor, and he sees life as it is. I shall be able always to tell him the truth. With Nicholas it is always lies. She suddenly sprang up and stood before me. Now do you think me noble? she cried. Yes, I answered. Ah, you are incorrigible. You have drunk Dostoevsky until you can see nothing but God and the Mujik. But I am alive, Ivan Andreevich, not a heroine in a book. Alive, alive, alive not one of your Lisa's or Anna's or Natasha's. I'm alive enough to shoot Uncle Alexei and poison Nicholas. But I'm soft, too, soft so that I cannot bear to see a rabbit killed. And yet I love Sherry so that I am blind for him and deaf for him and dead for him when he is not there. 
my love, the only one of my life, the first and the last. She flung out her arms. Life, now, before it is too late. I want it. I want him. I want happiness. She stood thus for a moment, staring out to sea. Then her arms dropped. She laughed, fastening her cloak. There's your nobility, Ivan Andreevich, theatrical, all of it. I know what I am, and I know what I shall do. Nicholas will live to eighty. I also. I shall hate him. But I shall be in an agony when he cuts his finger. I shall never see Sherry again. Later he will marry a fresh English girl, like an apple. I, because I am weak, soft putty, I have made it so. She turned away from me, staring desperately at the wall. When she looked back to me, her face was gray. She smiled. What a baby you are! But take care of yourself. Don't come on Monday if it's bad weather. Goodbye. She went. After a bad sleepless night, and a morning during which I dozed in a nightmarish kind of way, I got up early in the afternoon, had some tea, and about six o'clock started out. It was a lovely evening. The spring light was in the air. The tufted trees beside the canal were pink against the pale sky, and thin layers of ice, like fragments of jade, broke the soft blue of the water. How pleasant to feel the cobbles firm beneath one's feet, to know that the snow was gone for many months, and that light now would flood the streets and squares. Nevertheless, my foreboding was not raised, and the veils of color hung from house to house and from street to street could not change the realities of the scene. I climbed the stairs to the flat and found Vera waiting for me. She was with Uncle Ivan, who, I found to my disappointment, was coming with us. We started off. We can walk across to the berths, she said. It's such a lovely evening, and we're a little early. We talked of nothing but the most ordinary things. Uncle Ivan's company prevented anything else. To say that I cursed him is to put it very mildly. He had been, I believe, oblivious of all the scenes that had occurred during the last weeks. If the last judgment occurred under his very nose, and he had had a cosy meal in front of him, he would have noticed nothing. The revolution had had no effect on him at all. It did not seem strange to him that Semyonov should come to live with them. He had indeed fancied that Nicholas had not been very well lately, but then Nicholas had always been an odd and cantankerous fellow. And he, as he told me, never paid too much attention to his moods. His one anxiety was lest Sasha should be hindered from her usual shopping on the morrow, it being May Day, when there would be processions and other tiresome things. He hoped that there was enough food in the house. There will be cold cutlets and cheese, Vera said. He told me that he really did not know why he was going to this meeting. He took no interest in politics, and he hated speeches, but he would like to see our ambassador. He had heard that he was always excellently dressed. Vera said very little. Her troubles that evening must have been accumulating upon her with terrible force. I did not know at that time about her night scene with Nicholas. She was very quiet, and just as we entered the building, she whispered to me, "'Once over to-morrow.' I did not catch the rest. People pressed behind us, and for a moment we were separated. We were not alone again. I have wondered since what she meant by that, 
whether she had a foreboding or some more definite warning or whether she simply referred to the danger of riots and general lawlessness i shall never know now i had expected a crowded meeting but i was not prepared for the multitude that i found we entered by a side door and then passed up a narrow passage which led us to the reserved seats at the side of the platform i had secured these some days before in the dark passage one could realize nothing important gentlemen in frock-coats officers and one or two soldiers were hurrying to and fro with an air of having a great deal to do and not knowing at all how to do it beyond the darkness there was a steady hum like the distant whir of a great machine there was a very faint smell in the air of boots and human flesh a stout gentleman with a rosette in his buttonhole showed us to our seats vera sat between uncle ivan and myself when i looked about me i was amazed the huge hall was packed so tightly with human beings that one could see nothing but wave on wave of faces or rather the same face repeated again and again and again the face of a baby of a child of a credulous cynical dreamer a face the kindest the naivest the cruelest the most friendly the most human the most savage the most eastern and the most western in the world that vast presentation of that reiterated visage seemed suddenly to explain everything to me i felt at once the stupidity of any appeal and the instant necessity for every kind of appeal i felt the negation the sudden slipping into insignificant unimportance of the whole of the western world and at the same time the dismissal of the east no longer my masters a voice seemed to cry from the very heart of that multitude no longer will we halt at your command no longer will your words be wisdom to us no longer shall we smile with pleasure at your stories and cringe with fear at your displeasure you may hate our defection you may lament our disloyalty you may bribe us and smile upon us you may preach to us and bewail our sins we are no longer yours we are our own salute a new world for it is nothing less that you see before you and yet never were their forces more unconscious of their destiny utterly unselfconscious as animals babies the flowers of the field still there to be driven perhaps to be persuaded to be whipped to be cajoled to be blinded to be tricked and deceived drugged and deafened but not for long the end of that old world had come the new world was at hand life begins to-morrow the dignitaries came upon the platform and beyond them all in distinction nobility wisdom was our own ambassador this is no place for a record of the discretion and tact and forbearance that he had shown during those last two years to him had fallen perhaps the most difficult work of all in the war it might seem that on broad grounds the allies had failed with russia but the end was not yet and in years to come when england reaps unexpected fruit from her russian alliance let her remember to whom she owed it no one could see him there that night without realizing that there stood before russia as england's representative not only a great courtier and statesman but a great gentleman who had bonds of courage and endurance that linked him to the meanest soldier there i have emphasized this because he gave the note to the whole meeting 
Again and again one's eyes came back to him, and always that high brow, that unflinching carriage of the head, the nobility and breeding of every movement gave one reassurance and courage. One's own troubles seemed small beside that example, and the tangled morality of that vexed time seemed to be tested by a simpler and higher standard. It was altogether a strange affair. At first it lacked interest. Some member of the Italian embassy spoke, I think, and then someone from Serbia. The audience was apathetic. All those bodies, so tightly wedged together, that arms and legs were held in an iron vice, stayed motionless. And once and again there would be a short burst of applause, or a sibilant whisper, but it would be something mechanical and uninspired. I could see one soldier in the front row behind the barrier, a stout fellow with a face of supreme good humor, down whose forehead the sweat began to trickle. He was patient for a while, then he tried to raise his hand. He could not move without sending a ripple down the whole front line. Heads were turned indignantly in his direction. He submitted, then the sweat trickled into his eyes. He made a superhuman effort and half raised his arm. The crowd pushed again, and his arm fell. His face wore an expression of ludicrous despair. The hall got hotter and hotter. Soldiers seemed to be still pressing in at the back. The Italian gentleman screamed and waved his arms, but the faces turned up to his were blank and amiably expressionless. "'It is indeed terribly hot,' said Uncle Ivan. Then came a sailor from the Black Sea Fleet, who had made himself famous during these weeks by his impassioned oratory. He was a thin, dark-eyed fellow, and he obviously knew his business. He threw himself at once into the thick of it all, paying no attention to the stout, frock-coated gentleman who sat on the platform, dealing out no compliments, whether to the audience or the speakers, wasting no time at all. He told them all that they had debts to pay, that their honor was at stake, and that Europe was watching them. I don't know that that face that stared at him cared very greatly for Europe, but it is certain that a breath of emotion passed across it, that there was a stir, a movement, a response. He sat down. There was a roar of applause. He regarded them contemptuously. At that moment I caught sight of Boris Grogoff. I had been on the watch for him. I had thought it very likely that he would be there. Well, there he was, at the back of the crowd, listening with a contemptuous sneer on his face, and a long golden curl poking out from under his cap. And then something else occurred, something really strange. I was conscious, as one sometimes is in a crowd, that I was being stared at by someone deliberately. I looked about me, and then, led by the attraction of the other's gaze, I saw quite close to me, on the edge of the crowd nearest to the platform, the rat. He was dressed rather jauntily in a dark suit, with his cap set on one side, and his hair shining and curled. His face glittered with soap, and he was smiling in his usual friendly way. He gazed at me quite steadily. My lips moved very slightly in recognition. He smiled, and I fancy winked. Then, as though he had actually spoken to me, I seemed to hear him say, "'Well, good-bye. I'm never coming to you again. Good-bye. Good-bye.' 
It was as definite a farewell as you can have from a man, more definite than you will have from most, as though, further, he said, I'm gone for good and all. I have other company and more profitable plunder. On the back of our glorious revolution I rise from crime to crime. Goodbye. I was, in sober truth, never to speak to him again. I cannot but regret that on the last occasion when I should have a real opportunity of looking him full in the face, he was to offer me a countenance of friendly good humor and amiable rascality. I shall have until I die a feeling of tenderness. I was recalled from my observation of Grogoff and the Rat by the sensation that the waters of emotion were rising higher around me. I raised my eyes and saw that the Belgian consul was addressing the meeting. He was a stout little man, with eyeglasses and a face of no importance, but it was quite obvious at once that he was most terribly in earnest. Because he did not know the Russian language, he was under the unhappy necessity of having a translator, a thin and amiable Russian who suffered from short sight and a nervous stammer. He could not therefore have spoken under heavier disadvantages, and my heart ached for him. It need not have done so. He started in a low voice, and they shouted to him to speak up. At the end of his first paragraph, the amiable Russian began his translation, sticking his nose into the paper, losing the place, and stuttering over his sentences. There was a restless movement in the hall, and the poor Belgian consul seemed lost. He was made, however, of no mean stuff. Before the Russian had finished his translation, the little man had begun again. This time he had stepped forward, waving his glasses and his head and his hand bending forward and backward, his voice rising and rising. At the end of his next paragraph he paused, and because the Russian was slow and stammering once again, went forward on his own account. Soon he forgot himself, his audience, his translator, everything except his own dear Belgium. His voice rose and rose. He pleaded with a marvelous rhythm of eloquence her history, her fate, her shameful devastation. He appealed on behalf of her murdered children, her ravished women, her slaughtered men. He appealed on behalf of her arts, her cathedrals and libraries ruined, her towns plundered. He told a story, very quietly, of an old grandfather and grandmother murdered and their daughter ravished before the eyes of her tiny children. Here he himself began to shed tears. He tried to brush them back. He paused and wiped his eyes. Finally, breaking down altogether, he turned away and hid his face. I do not suppose that there were more than a dozen persons in that hall who understood anything of the language in which he spoke. Certainly it was the merest gibberish to that whole army of listening men. Nevertheless, with every word that he uttered, the emotion grew tenser. Cries, little sharp cries, like the bark of a puppy, broke out here and there. Verno, verno, verno. True, true, true. Movements like the swift finger of the wind on the sea hovered, wavered, and vanished. He turned back to them, his voice broken with sobs, and he could only cry the one word, Belgia, Belgia, Belgia. To that they responded. They began to shout, to cry aloud. The screams of verno, verno, rose until it seemed that the roof would rise with them. 
the air was filled with shouts bravo for the allies soyuz nikki soyuz nikki men raised their caps and waved them smiled upon one another as though they had suddenly heard wonderful news shouted and shouted and shouted and in the midst of it all the little rotund belgian consul stood bowing and wiping his eyes how pleased we all were i whispered to vera you see they do care their hearts are touched we can do anything with them now even uncle ivan was moved and murmured to himself poor belgium poor belgium how delighted too were the gentlemen on the platform smiling they whispered to one another and i saw several shake hands a great moment the little consul bowed finally and sat down never shall i forget the applause that followed like one man the thousands shouted tears raining down their cheeks shaking hands even embracing a vast movement as though the wind had caught them and driven them forward rose lifted them so that they swayed like bending corn towards the platform for an instant we were all caught up together there was one great cry belgium the sound rose fell sunk into a muttering whisper died to give way to the breathless attention that awaited the next speaker i whispered to vera i shall never forget that i'm going to leave on that it's good enough for me yes she said we'll go what a pity whispered uncle ivan that they didn't understand what they were shouting about we slipped out behind the platform turned down the dark long passage hearing the new speaker's voice like a bell ringing beyond thick walls and found our way into the open the evening was wonderfully fresh and clear the neva lay before us like a blue scarf and the air faded into colorless beauty above the dark purple of the towers and domes vera caught my arm look she whispered there's boris i knew that she had on several occasions tried to force her way into his flat that she had written every day to nina letters as it afterwards appeared that boris kept from her i was afraid that she would do something violent wait i whispered perhaps nina is here somewhere Grogoff was standing with another man on a small improvised platform just outside the gates of the bourse. As the soldiers came out, many of them were leaving now on the full tide of their recent emotions. Grogoff and his friend caught them, held them, and proceeded to instruct their minds. I caught some of Grogoff's sentences. Tovarischi, I heard him cry. Comrades, listen to me. Don't allow your feelings to carry you away you have serious responsibilities now and the thing for you to do is not to permit sentiment to make you foolish who brought you into this war your leaders no your old masters they bled you and robbed you and slaughtered you to fill their own pockets who is ruling the world now the people to whom the world truly belongs no the capitalists the money grubbers the old thieves like nicholas who is now under lock and key capitalists england france thieves robbers belgium what is belgium to you did you swear to protect her people does england who pretends such loving care for belgium does she look after ireland what about her persecution of south africa belgium have you heard what she did in the Congo? 
as the men came talking smiling wiping their eyes they were caught by grogoff's voice they stood there and listened soon they began to nod their heads i heard them muttering that good old word verno verno again the crowd grew the men began to shout their approval ay it's true i heard a soldier near me mutter the english are thieves and another belgium after all i could not understand a word of what that little fat man said i heard no more but i did not wonder now at the floods that were rising and rising soon to engulf the whole of this great country the end of this stage of our story was approaching for all of us we three had stood back a little in the shadow gazing about to see whether we could hail a cab as we waited i took my last look at grogoff his stout figure against the purple sky the mass of the ships the pale tumbling river the black line of the farther shore he stood his arms waving his mouth open the personification of the disease from which russia was suffering a cab arrived i turned said as it were my farewell to grogoff and everything for which he stood and went we drove home almost in silence vera staring in front of her her face proud and reserved building up a wall of her own thoughts come in for a moment won't you she asked me rather reluctantly i thought but i accepted climbed the stairs and followed uncle ivan's stubby and self-satisfied progress into the flat I heard Vera cry. I hurried after her, and found, standing close together in the middle of the room, Henry Bohan and Nina. With a little sob of joy and shame, too, Nina was locked in Vera's arms. End of Part 3, Chapter 14